You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. And uh, with that, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew this evening. We are going to be starting a study in the Gospel of Matthew. That is the first book in the New Testament, so it shouldn't be too hard to find if you, uh, if you open up in your Bibles there. Beginning a brand new study, like I said, going to be spending our Wednesday nights going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Matthew. And uh, really, as we start off tonight, just by way of introduction, this, this, uh, this whole study is going to be pretty much an introductory type of study as it comes to our study of the book of Matthew. And that's because it is a, it is a big book. It is quite a commitment of a study, and I'm excited to commit to it with you guys and study through it. Uh, but it's also the start of the Gospels as well. And so that takes some introductory work in and of itself as well. So tonight's study, if you're taking notes, is titled The Genealogy of the King. And uh, again, it is going to be more of an introductory study tonight. We are going to study the first 17 verses, which if you know anything about it or if you've skimmed ahead a little bit, it's all names. So get ready for a lot of names tonight. And we are actually going to get them all out of the way here right now. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read our entire text um, so as to get all the mispronunciations of the names out of the way for you guys. And then uh, we'll move on from there. So Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Albiad, and Albiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Ikim. Ikim begot Iliad. Iliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathen. Mathen begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph. These get easier. The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this evening. Lord, I thank you for any time that we get to come together as the body of Christ and study your word. And Lord, I'm so thankful for these precious men and women that have come out tonight to study your word, to, Lord, take time out of the week to come here and do what you call us to, to grow in the knowledge of your word, to be built up and edified as the body of Christ. And I pray that tonight that we together would seek to do that as we open up your word, as we open up and start this new book. Lord, would you speak volumes to your church that we would know, Father, how we are to walk with you, how we are to see you as the king, as the one who is the ruler of all and who is leading us in this life 
and who has also promised to never leave us in this life. Lord, I thank you that your word speaks truth and that we get to study it now. So help us in that, I pray, as we open up now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, as I said, as we begin the study of Matthew tonight, we do well to build a bit of background of the book. It really helps us in our study of the Bible, any book of the Bible, to build a foundation to build upon and gain background as to the context and the characters and really the theme of the book that we're studying. But again, we're not just looking at the book of Matthew tonight. We're actually starting one of the four Gospels. And so it does us well in that light to actually introduce the Gospels as well and to build a foundation on what the Gospels are in the Bible. So if you're taking notes tonight, we are first tonight going to look at an introduction to the Gospels. And the first way that we, that we know how to work with something that we're studying is to simply define and identify it. And so the gospel's defined, if you have read the New Testament at all, if you've read maybe during a Bible reading plan throughout the year, or you've just read devotionally or academically, you know that the first four books of the New Testament are known as the gospels. And that word gospel, which in the Greek is a really cool word, euangelion, it simply means good news. And it is appropriate as these four books of the New Testament share with us what is the greatest good news in all of the world. That is the coming of Jesus Christ, God taking on human flesh and walking and living from a baby to a man, a life so as to be able to sympathize and know us and know how to intercede for us and then go to the cross and die a sacrificial death for us a death that we could not die because of our sin, because of our humanity and our sinful fallen state, Jesus went in our stead to the cross and paid the price so that we could be saved. And that is good news because without the good news, we're lost. Without Jesus, we are lost. And so these four gospels that we see here, they are indeed, as the Greek word euangelion means, good news. And so that really helps us to define what the gospels are. Now, as long as, as, as we're studying this, we need to not only define them, but also understand that there are differentiations between these four gospels. As you read or as you have possibly read through the gospels, you have no doubt noticed that there is a consistent theme. Again, they all tell the same story. They tell the story of Jesus coming and living and then dying, raising from the dead and providing for us a way of hope and salvation. They all record for us his, his life, the beginning of his life. At different parts, if you read you know, Matthew and Luke, you open up with the babe in Bethlehem. If you open up with Mark, you start with John the Baptist. If you read John, you start in the beginning because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So they all start in different places. However, they still relay to us events of Jesus's life. They all record stories from his ministry and the different things that he did. However, you see different details that each author hits on. And they all record his death and resurrection and events that follow, but they each take a different way of doing so. And this has caused some, some who criticize the legitimacy and the accuracy of the Bible, to attack the Bible and trip people up. Maybe yourself, you have been tripped up even by 
what seems uh, like what, what are seeming differences there amongst the Gospels. But please understand that as we look at the differentiations within the Gospels, they are not meant to be seen as contradictions, but they are meant to be seen as contributions to the whole story of Jesus Christ. As we read the different Gospels, what you need to understand is that each one is there pointed to a different audience and is sharing a different message. Though the theme is the same, the theme of Jesus' life, the message that is meant to be get, getting a, gotten across to the audience is specific to the audience that that author was writ, writing to. For example, the book of Matthew that we are studying tonight, it was written first and foremost to the, a Jewish audience. And the reason for that is because Matthew is seeking to show that Jesus is the coming Jewish Messiah and the rightful king of Israel from the line of David. And that is why Matthew wrote his gospel. Matthew was a Jew. And so he wrote to a Jewish audience so as to show there that Jesus was the Messiah. Mark, however, he wrote not to the Jews, but to the Roman slave population. And he wrote them to show that Jesus was the perfect servant. If you read Matthew and Mark, you're going to read much of the same story. However, you're going to see that Mark is pretty much Matthew, as one commentator says it, without the sermons. Because slaves, they didn't want sermons. They wanted stories. And so Mark writes there to the Roman slave population about Jesus, who is the greatest servant of all. The one who says, it says of in Mark 10, 45, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke, we know, wrote to the Greeks, and he wrote to the Greeks to show Jesus's humanity and how he lived as fully man, as well as being fully God as he walked on this earth. And then John, well, he wrote to everyone. Again, he's kind of, the, he's kind of the, the oddball when it comes to the four gospels because he wrote not to the Jews or the Gentiles specifically, but to everyone. And he wrote to them to show what the entire world needs to know, that Jesus is fully God. He wrote the book of John so that we would believe that Jesus is God, that he is deity, and that he is the only way to salvation, the only way provided for us for salvation. And with that differentiation between these four, specifically with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and being different from John, it does us well to also share that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as synoptic gospels. And it's there on your outline uh, what, synoptic what synoptic means. And it simply means seen together. And that's because if you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you read them in tandem with one another, they are, in fact, seen together. In fact, there are some pastors out there that are way crazier than I am who will teach all three books at the same time because they're seen together. I, I can't do that. I would, I would die. So you get one book at a time spread over a large amount of time because it's the same story. But we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called the synoptic gospels because if you read them together, and you should and can, then what you see is the same prevailing story written to different audiences. However, they are written about Jesus. And John, of course, though it is accurate and is accepted as the gospel, it is to a different audience. It's to the whole world for a different message. And again, each gospel reveals Jesus as the savior of the world. But each gospel was written to a specific audience to an audience that would need to see Jesus in the context of which they could relate to. 
And so that is why you see the differences. Because in that, we see Jesus is everything that the Bible says that he is. We see in Matthew that Jesus is king. We see in Mark that he is the example of the perfect servant that calls us to serve as he served. We see in Luke that he was fully man while he was here on the earth and so can relate to us. He can be the one who can intercede for us as Hebrews says that he does, knowing us and knowing how to sympathize in our weakness. And then John shows us again that he is the son of God, that he is fully deity and he is our only way to salvation. You know, a way that helps me to differentiate but yet link all of the Gospels together. I'm, I'm a music guy. I'm not a very good music guy, but I'm a music guy. And so I like to think of it in the terms of like, uh, uh, like instruments, different instruments playing. In high school and college, I played trumpets, and I was what you would call a, a band nerd. And to just let you know how much of that I was, I used to skip class to go practice my instrument. So anyways, I was that person who would ditch to go practice. But anyways, I think of the Gospels as really a four-piece, a four-piece, uh, a four-piece group, a quartet. And I think of myself, when I played trumpet, I really enjoyed quartets. I enjoyed small groups. I enjoyed being a soloist because I'm full of myself, but I really enjoyed quartets as well because I got to play with other people. And when I think about the Gospels and I think about a jazz quartet or a classical quartet, it does well for me to link because I think each person has their part to play. And separate, they sound cool, but together you get the full picture. Together you get the full picture. And that is really what you see with all of the Gospels. They are different in their audience. They are different in their target of showing Jesus. However, they all give a full revelation of who he is. And so as we study the gospel of Matthew, we are studying one of these gospels. And I encourage you, as I encourage you always, to read your Bible on your own and to read the gospels and to see how they link together. So that is a brief intro into the gospels themselves. Let's actually move into the gospel that we're studying and look at some background and the purpose of Matthew. And as we do when we start a new book of the Bible, it always does us well to hit on a few key things about that book. First and foremost is the author. Who wrote the book of Matthew? Well, church tradition, all the way back to the early church, all unanimously say that Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew. He was also called Levi. And this is the same Matthew who is listed among the 12 disciples of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. In Mark chapter 3, verse 18, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 15, that is where the different gospels give the listing of the 12 disciples. And we see his call to be a disciple by Jesus, specifically in Matthew 9. It's also in Mark and Luke. However, because we're studying Matthew, that's the verse that we reference. And in Matthew 9, 9, it says that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, Mark and Luke actually say Levi, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Again, Mark and Luke account for this call by Jesus to Matthew, but they use, again, his other name, Levi. And we learn from these passages, not only that Matthew was called Levi, but and called by Jesus to follow him, but we also learn a bit of background about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man, and he was a tax collector which is fitting, first and foremost, that he would write to the Jews, being a Jewish man, wanting to write to a Jewish audience to show the Jewish Messiah. However, it's 
kind of abnormal and really only by the grace of God that he as a tax collector is writing to a Jewish audience. Because you see, in that day, just building some context for you guys, tax collectors were hated amongst the Jews because they were traitors amongst their own people. You see, under the rule of Roman governments, there were taxes, of course, put on the people. And the Romans would enlist people of their own nationality to collect the taxes that were due. And they would instruct them to go to their neighbors, to go to their people, and to there collect the taxes due to that government. But they told them that they didn't have to tell how much the people owed. And so if you were a tax collector and you decided you wanted to, you know, improve your bottom line a little bit better, you could go to your neighbor and say, hey, you know taxes are this, but you say they're you know, X amount above. And whatever above that you got, you got to keep. And so tax collectors amongst, amongst their own society, man, they, they, they were pretty low in everyone's view because they were seen as traitors aligning with the Roman government who was holding and oppressing their, their people. But then they were also considered shady because they knew that they were getting wealthy off of dishonest dishonest motives and dishonest methods. And so Matthew here is this tax collector that Jesus calls to be his own disciple, which would have been amazing too. When you think about the disciples, and we'll go over this as we get further into it, but I was thinking about it today. You think about the disciples and how Jesus called them to himself. That was a ragtag bunch of people. And it it makes sense because we look at ourselves, we're like, all right, Lord, it makes sense that you would call crazy people because we're all crazy too. And it's good that the Lord does that. He loves crazy people. But you think about Matthew, a tax collector, who is on the same team as Simon the Zealot, a guy who was all about overthrowing the Roman government. And you've got this other one who's kind of crawled up and is hanging out with the Roman government and benefiting financially from them. Like Jesus calling these guys and putting them together, that's such a picture of the Lord working in the way that he wants to work and working in a way to where it doesn't make sense to us often, but we know that as God's grace moves and it works in us, hey, it shapes us differently to where different people with different views can function under the banner of Jesus Christ. It's so amazing to see that and to think about that. And we'll think about it again when we get to where Jesus calls his disciples. However, though, what we see again with Matthew, his being a tax collector and his being there, um, a Jewish man, is he was both the perfect and the most unlikely person to write the Gospel of Matthew. He was perfect because he was Jewish and he was a tax collector. So his walking and living with Jesus, man, he would get all of the Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled in front of him by the Lord. Like he, he would get that and he would see and understand some of those things, especially after Jesus had ascended because he would remember, oh man, I was there when Jesus did this. I was there when Jesus said this. And he would remember that. And then as a tax collector, he was very detail-oriented. And we see that in his writing. And it's cool to see that he is the perfect candidate for writing the Gospel of Matthew. He's the most unlikely again, though, because he was a Jewish tax collector writing to a Jewish audience. And so it's only by the grace of God and God working in him and through him and the grace of God working through others and the power of the Holy Spirit teaching the Word of God that the Jewish audience would see and believe this. And it's just amazing to see how the Lord works all of that out, how the Lord does work that way. And it encourages me to think about things like that, to think about how there are times when I think that I'm the perfect candidate to go to a certain person. And I'm like, yeah, Lord, this makes perfect sense. You want me to go to this guy? He's a runner. He's a cyclist. He plays guitar. Yeah, let's talk about the Lord with this dude who doesn't know the Lord. He tells me to go to a football fan. I'm like, no, 
He tells me to go to someone who's completely different than I am. I'm like, I'm not that person. The Lord's like, yeah, you are, because I'm with you, because I'm driving this boat. So go. I'm so encouraged by that as we look here at who Matthew is and what he did and what the Lord called him to do. So Matthew is the author. The date that it was written was, it was, most scholars believe, around 50 AD, and it was written there so as to be dispersed amongst Jewish communities that were not able to hear the apostles' doctrine. So Matthew took it upon himself, influenced by the Holy Spirit, to write this book so as to get the message of the gospel out there, not only central to where the central church of was at in Jerusalem, but also throughout other areas. So AD 50, that's the purpose in which he wrote it. But the theme that we see really that prevails through, we've already mentioned it before, but the prevailing theme of the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus there as as who the Jewish audience was looking for, the promised Messiah and the true king of Israel. And again, being a Jew, he knew the history of the Jewish nations, including that many prophecies that spoke of Jesus coming and living the way that he did. And as a tax collector, his attention to detail really helped him out. And this really plays out in Matthew's attempt to show Jesus as the Christ, as Christ the King throughout this book, to reach there a Jewish audience by honing in on things that Jesus said by honing in on prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And what we're going to see as we study this book are those prophecies being fulfilled right before our eyes. And this will be a great study for us to be able to reference much of the Old Testament and to look at where the Old Testament prophets spoke of here, Jesus doing thus and so. And I'm very excited for that because what it does for us is it concretes in our minds who Jesus is as well. See, as you read the gospels, as you study the gospels, what it should do for you is it should concrete in our hearts and minds who Jesus is and the fact that the Bible is dead on in every part of it. That the Bible is dead on accurate and never contradicts and that Jesus is who he says he is because of much of what we see fulfilled from the Old Testament. And I'm thankful for the gospel of Matthew. I'm thankful for all the Bible. But I'm thankful for the gospel of Matthew being one that speaks and teaches so much about Jesus being that coming Messiah that we see prophesied in the Old Testament. You know, some people like to divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament, whether they think that it's, okay, the Old Testament is about the God of wrath and the New Testament is about Jesus and about love and grace, or they just say, you know, the Old Testament is, is, is old, so we just need to kind of, you know, ignore it a bit. And the New Testament, that's where we're at. You know, we're in the church age, and so the New Testament, that's what we look to. But really, as Bible students, as believers, as the church, we're called to know all of the word. And all of the word, the best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. That's the golden rule of interpretation. And so as we look here at studying the gospel of Matthew, understand that we see the whole counsel of God being proved and shown as true to us. And I'm excited for that. I'm very excited. And I'm excited too, as we start, even with this first grouping of verses, these 17 verses of names tonight. Because what we see here, and a little bit of background on this, What we see here is really an attention grabber for us as the audience. Now, you may be thinking, as I often do when I come to a genealogy in the Bible, this isn't much of an attention grabber. And I'll be fully honest with you. There are some times in my one-year Bible reading plan when I skip names. And I hope you're okay with a pastor that does that because I do it. It's five something, it's, it's, you know, early in the morning. And I look at my Bible, it's a bunch of names. I'm like, New Testament today. (laughs) 
I'll just catch it next time. <laughs> but what we see here is this attention grabber. This attention grabber for the audience that it was originally written to. Because here, what, what Matthew does is he opens up in verse 1, and he says there, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that right there is an attention grabber for the audience and should be for us as well. And I'll tell you why in just a moment, now that I have your attention. But this book does start out with a genealogy. And it is, this, it is one of the two gospels that does start with a genealogy. The other one is the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke gives us genealogy and a, an account from Mary of, of the birth of Jesus. This one gives us um, Joseph's line and account there of, of, the, uh, of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to study that next week. But the reasoning with the, for these differences in the genealogy have to do again with the intent of the author. You see, the author of Luke, Luke, who was speaking to the Greeks, wanted to show Jesus as man, fully man and fully God. And so his genealogy starts with Joseph and goes all the way back to Adam, showing that he was their human. He was man, that he has this genealogy through that. Matthew's intent, however, is not to show the humanity of Jesus, but to show that he is, again, the Messiah, the rightful king of the Jews. And Matthew here is believed to have gotten the account of Jesus's birth from Jesus himself, as he would have been told by Joseph. But what he does is he here gives this genealogy, not again to show that Jesus is fully man, but to show that he is the rightful Messiah that he is the king of the Jews. And he does so by grabbing the attention of the Jewish reader by mentioning two key players within the Jewish faith. And that is, again, Abraham and David. That would have been an attention grabber there. Anyone who is looking to see that this author is wanting to prove that this guy is the Messiah, that he's the rightful king, well, they're like, all right, show me his bloodline. Show me who he comes from. Show me who his great-great-great-great-grandpa is. I need to see that, especially within the Jewish community where genealogy is key, specifically when it comes to this promised Messiah and rightful king of the Jews. And so Matthew, very intelligently and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he grabs the attention of the audience by mentioning David and Abraham. And looking there at, at those two briefly, what we know about them is that they are key within the Jewish faith, but they also received very specific promises from the Lord about the work that they would have done in the faith. Looking first there at Abraham. We know that Abraham considered the father of faith, that the Lord spoke to him first and foremost in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He was known as Abram then, and he was dwelling with his family in the, there in his homeland. And the Lord speaks to him and says in Genesis 12, 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see here in Genesis 12, the Lord comes to Abraham. And he speaks to him there this call and this promise that's coupled with that call. The call is to get up and to go. The call is to get up, put his faith in this one God and to go to where this one God was going to tell him to go. And from there, the Lord was going to make him into a great nation. 
The Lord was going to bring from him a nation, a people that was going to be a blessing, a set apart people to the Lord who was going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And we know that the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus, who we know is that Messiah, well, he came from the Jewish nation. The Savior came from Israel. And so he was, is today a blessing to the world. That is a promise that the Lord has fulfilled. And so what we see here for the Jewish audience, as they see their Abraham, is they think, okay, he's from the line of Abraham. So that's one, one tick mark to his good. The next one would be David, because David also had a promise from the Lord. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 13, the Lord says there to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, much in the same way that God spoke to Abraham, he spoke to David as well. And this promise to David that his descendants would establish forever a kingdom gives way to the coming king of the Jews and the ultimate king to come from his line. Now, again, for the genealogy's sake, if you're trying to convince the Jewish audience of Jesus's kingship and his worthiness to be called the Messiah, well, then you need to show them that he is first and foremost from Abraham, that he is a Jew, and that he is from there the proper line that he's from the tribe of Judah, and he is from the line of David. But it's not only, understand, for the genealogy's sake that Matthew shares this, but also for the sake of reminding the Jews that God kept his promise. Then that Jesus is the fulfilling of that promise of a coming Savior. You see, David and Abraham are great promises that, or received great promises that came from the Lord. They received great promises from the Lord that were fulfilled in Jesus. And though the people missed it, and now Matthew was trying to convince them otherwise, what we see in the word of God is that Jesus fulfilled those promises, that he is the fulfillment of those promises, that he is the true king, and he is the coming Messiah that was promised of. And what I love about this is, again, just the detail that we see within the word of God. As a student of the Bible, I, I really love that. I geek out over that. But as a believer, what I love even more about it is the fact that it's another proof that God keeps his promises. It's another fact and, 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 and word to me as a believer that God is one that when he says he's going to do something, that he's going to do it. If the Lord speaks and he says, I want to lead, I want to guide you, I want to give you, I want to take you, whether it's in his word or to me personally or to you or to his church, whatever he says he's going to do, God is going to do it. And I'm encouraged by that tonight because there's a world that we live in that is oftentimes giving promises, giving things that we are invited to hold on to that don't really measure up. There's things in this life that we see that we grab a hold of or that we walk with that will fail us, but the Lord, he never does. He never has and he never will. And we can know whether it be, again, things that we see in the word that as the church we look forward to, you know, his return to get us sometime, I pray, very soon or his presence to always be with us during the time that we're waiting for him, I know that I can bank on those. I know that I can bank on the promises of God. And this is just another proof for that for me. That I know that the Lord is with me. I know that the Lord is the Lord who is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And so it's great for the genealogy, but it's also great for us to be encouraged with tonight. 
Maybe you are in a place where you're doubting the goodness of the Lord. I mean, you can turn on the news and as humans, it's easy for us to, you know, get discouraged. It's easy for us to look and become fearful. Again, because we're humans. And that's just a natural thing that us in our flesh that we do. But what we can do is we can always run to the Lord and know that, hey, he promised to be with me. You know, not to spoil the end of Matthew for you, but that's what he says at the end of Matthew. As he's there commissioning the church, he's commissioning the disciples to go into all the world, to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says at the end of that, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's another promise that we can bank on. And if the Lord has fulfilled promises in the past, he will always fulfill promises in the future. And so tonight, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by the fact that the Lord has you, that he's with you, that he's leading you and guiding you. And what he says, man, he's gonna do it every single time. So we see there this attention grabber for, for the audience there, and it's good for us as well. But we also see as we read through these names here, not only promises fulfilled and attention grabbing, really Jesus fitting the bill as being just within Abraham and David, the right person, but we also see a grace that is really reflected, God's grace that is really reflected through these names. Now, we read through all these names, and if you would like, we could do like a 30-some-odd week, you know, character study of each name. I don't know that you want to do that. I definitely don't want to do that, so we're not going to do that. But what I know is as we look through this list of names here, that there's some interesting people in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's some interesting people here in the genealogy of Jesus. And what is astounding, and what, have been, what would have been astounding in Matthew's audience is really the inclusivity of those in the genealogy of Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah. Certainly Jesus, again, would have to have Abraham and he would have to have David in there to even get into the game. Like that right there was first and foremost. If he's not, from the, if he's not a Jew, he's not from the line of David, he can't be the guy. He was, so it worked out. But this reality that they are there and is especially astounding when you think about Jesus being the savior of the world. Because with Jesus being the savior of the world, David, Abraham, Solomon, everyone for that matter within his line, well, they were all sinners. And they're Bible heroes to many of us, but the way that they failed, <laughs> they failed pretty big when they failed. I mean, you think about who was, who was named first there, Abraham, or who we named first, Abraham. He's the father of faith who failed miserably in faith many times. Two times come to mind where he told his wife, hey, pretend you're my sister so that they don't kill me. You know, that's kind of a big blowing it as the father of faith. You look at David. David, who's the man after God's own heart, penned many of the Psalms, was a mighty man there in the nation of Israel, was the greatest king that Israel ever had. What, what did he do? He was a murderous adulterer. He saw a woman bathing on his balcony one night when he should have been out fighting with his men. And he said, I, I, that's, that's what I want. And he committed adultery and then tried to cover it up by killing her husband. Actually, he took other steps before that. Those two guys are first and foremost in his genealogy. Moving down the line, you've got Judah, the line that the Messiah is to come from. Well, Judah, what he did is he had engaged in relationships with a prostitute who actually ended up being his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's also, you notice, within this, within this genealogy as well. Solomon, David's son, was an idol-worshiping idol playboy in his day. He had so many wives and all kinds of horses and everything like that. So he's just like any of us, a dirtbag sinner. 
just be real. Then you've got the list of kings that come after Solomon. It's those names that are, that, are, that are listed there. They are some of the worst kings. If you read the Bible, again, this is a plug just to read your Bible, read, read the Old Testament. They're some of the worst kings that the nation of Judah ever saw. Next week, when we look at Joseph, and we're going to look specifically at Joseph and his account of Jesus' birth, we're going to see really how Joseph is a real special character within this story. And the reason that Jesus is able to come through, come through the line is because Joseph isn't his father. Because there would have been a curse, or not his biological father, because there was a curse there on King Jeconiah that would have kept Jesus from being the one who was the Messiah. And so we'll look at that next week, and it's exciting to do so. But the kings that are listed there are wicked men. And then after that, I mentioned Tamar. There are other women present. There are five women total within this genealogy. One of them is great because she's the mother of Jesus, so she's good. But the other ones are not so great. They have very colorful past. You look there at Tamar. She there dressed as a harlot and entered into sexual relationship with her father-in-law. You've got there Rahab. She's a Gentile from the walls of Jericho who was, the Bible says, a harlot. She was a prostitute. You've got there Ruth, who was a Moabite. She was a Gentile as well, who was a widow who married into this line by marrying a man named Boaz. And then you have the wife of Uriah there. We know her as Bathsheba. She is the one who, again, entered into, was involved in an affair with the king, and then her husband was murdered for, you know, cover-up purposes. But the point with all this is we open up this gospel, as we open up this genealogy and look at here Matthew speaking to this audience, claiming and proving that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel, what we see here is that Jesus, well, Jesus, man, he does something really special. Because unlike us, who, when it comes to family, get what you get and can't throw a fit, Jesus got to pick his family. Jesus got to pick who he came through. Jesus knew that as the Savior of the world and as the Messiah and as the rightful King of Israel, who he had to come through. Not only did he know who he was coming through, he knew what they were going to do. And yet what he did, knowing all of that because he's God, is he came through that line. Now, that doesn't make what they did right, nor does it make Jesus out to be someone who tolerates sin. I want to be very clear on that. It's not him coming through this line of these people who blew it, and so Jesus is okay with their sin. He made an exception to be able to come through their line. No, the Lord hates sin, judges sin, and deals with sin, and Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Thank you for, for that. But Jesus, what he does is he comes through this line of men and women who have blown it, who are unlikely to ever have the Savior of the world come through the line. What he does is he shows us really this grace and the extension and reflection of God's grace to the world. Because you see, what Jesus does is he comes through this line, as he picks the line he's coming through, as he picks those who are in his family tree and the path, the colorful past that they have, he says there that, look, I can come despite your failure. And I can enter into this world and I am powerful enough to live and still be effective for the whole world to be saved. And what that does is it shows us the power of God. It shows us the grace of God. 
And what it also does is it gives us a great call to realize that that grace can and needs to be applied to us, and that grace can and needs to be applied to us no matter what we have done, where we have come from, who we have come from. You see, what this does is it lifts from us any excuse that we could give to say, well, I do this because of thus and so. Or I do this because of my upbringing. Or I say this and walk this way and act this way because I just grew up that way. Because it's just the way my family's always been. It's the way that I've always just, it's, you look at Jesus' line and you're like, well, he's Jesus. That's fine. But Jesus still loves you and saved you so that you could walk and calls you to walk as he did. And what Jesus exemplifies for us is the fact that our upbringing, our past, our environment does not dictate or determine who we are. We have a choice. We have a choice in Jesus Christ to say, no, this is the way I'm going to go. And I'm not going to blame my sin on my upbringing. I'm not going to blame my sin on my past or my family tree or my bloodline. I'm going to take hold of the Lord admit my fault, admit my sin, admit my need for a savior and walk forward with him. That's what we see here with Jesus coming through this line of failures. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Jesus didn't just show up through this perfect line or just show up period as a grown man just to deal with things. No, what he did is he came the way that he did so as to be able to relate to us perfectly, to be able to relate to us and show us how to live with him in this world. And he also shows us in this that not only do we have a call to latch on to Jesus, to walk with him despite who we are, who we've been, or where we come from, but also to look at the rest of the world with the same opportunity. To realize that those around us who look differently or sin differently than we do, and we always rank sin, we always make someone else's sin out to be worse than ours because that's what we do. What Jesus does here is he shows us, hey, look, I came from a line of failures. You're a failure. They're a failure. But I'm still a savior. And I still want to save them. And so what we need to do is realize that there is great grace that is reflected in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that Jesus shows us how to live despite where he came from, the same way that we can, and that we are called to share the truth of Jesus, the grace of God, the ability for Jesus to save anyone and everyone that would call upon the name of the Lord no matter where they've been, no matter where they come from. And when I think about that, I think about people differently. I think about people around me differently. I think about people around me differently that I would look at and say, there's not a chance. And I do that, fully honest, as a human, I do that. I look at someone who's sinning in a certain way and I'm like, there's no way, you are too far from the Lord. That's not my place. That's not your place, that's not our place. Because the Lord can save anyone. And what we're called to do is to share the message of God's grace, to share the truth of the gospel, share the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do, who he truly is, and how he can actually and ultimately save, and how he promises to save those who would call upon him, who would put their faith into him. It's another promise that he holds on to, that as we put our faith in him, as we walk with him, as we abide in him, we're his. And we can bank on that. But what we do, what we see as we start the book of Matthew tonight, is we see that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. 
And he lived a life showing us and exemplifying for us a life that we can live with him no matter where we come from. And it also calls us and challenges us to go to others in this world that are different than us and say, you know what? The Lord saved me. He can certainly save you. And to not discount God's grace, to not judge others and judge whether or not they can have that grace or be affected by that grace because all can be affected by that grace. And that should influence the way that we speak to people. That should influence the way that we look at our coworkers and look at our friends and our our family who don't know the Lord, who look at people that we watch on the news that we disagree with, those that are affiliated with different political parties that we disagree with. We need to look and say, you know what? The Lord can save that person the same way he saved me because our sin, it just gets us to hell. No matter what it does, no matter what it looks like, it gets us to the same place. And the answer for all of us is Jesus. And so tonight, as we start the book of Matthew, I'm excited. I'm excited to start a new book with you guys. I'm excited to study this book. But I pray that we would realize tonight that the gospel, the good news that Matthew is going to share, that Mark shared, that Luke shares, that John shares, that's a gospel message that is alive today. It's a gospel message that is alive that we need to be about sharing in this world. And we know it as we study it. We know it as we read it. We know it as we apply it. And so let's pray tonight that we would. Let's pray tonight that we would, as we study the book of Matthew, see Jesus as the king, see him and enthrone him in our lives as the king as well, to be led by him, to show him and shine him wherever we go. Let's pray.